You're listening to a podcast by Redeemer Bible Church. Come visit us Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. or visit our website at RedeemerFortBend.org for more information. Thanks and enjoy. week, most of us here would have enjoyed the celebration of Thanksgiving, and with 300 other million Americans, we sat down and overloaded on turkey and pumpkin pie and watched football, and we spent the day eating and laughing with our family and friends. Most of us know the story of Thanksgiving, right? It was originally celebrated to commemorate the pilgrims after their arrival here in the U.S. in 1621. And you may know the pilgrims encountered much distress when they traveled across. They encountered delays in their journey and landed in Cape Cod uh, in November at the onset of uh, winter time. And they were at risk of starvation and lacked suitable shelter because everything had frozen over. And throughout that voyage and during that first winter, 102 passengers, they lived on the Mayflower, which is about uh, 1,600 square feet. Now imagine that 102 people living, not sleeping, but living in the size of a very small or modest Houston home. And due to disease, when their first winter was over, only 53 of them were left. That's how many people died, and only 53 remained. And yet by God's mercy and grace, The pilgrims received vital help from the Native Americans. Over time, they established trust and they were able to form a peaceful alliance with the natives who then taught them how to hunt and to grow food. And after the first harvest in October 1621, the pilgrims organized a three-day feast attended by 90-odd other Native Americans in thanksgiving to God. So despite all their hardships, Despite the severe loss of lives, the pilgrims recognized that they had much to be thankful to uh, to God for, and they maintained a heart of gratitude. Thanksgiving became an annual custom after that time, spreading initially through the New England area, and then eventually through the rest of the United States, until eventually in 1781, President George Washington proclaimed Thanksgiving a national holiday. Well, what does all this have to do with us this morning? This morning, we're going to look at Psalm 118. This is a song of thanksgiving to commemorate God's goodness to his people. Like the Thanksgiving holiday, this psalm was written to memorialize and to remind God's people with regularity about his faithful provision, both in meeting their physical needs as well as their spiritual needs. This psalm was likely written after Israel's exile from Babylon, and it's a communal song. That means in the Jewish tradition, the psalm was sung at all the festivals by the entire congregation, especially during the Passover. And although it was originally written for the Israelites, it still has a lot of relevance to us today, because all those who belong to the kingdom of God enjoy special privileges that no one else does. The psalm reminds us that God is good, 
And because of that, we should be a grateful people, both in our heart attitudes and in our words and in our actions. It encourages not just to have an academic knowledge of God's goodness, but it is this understanding that drives our response to Him. So we'll look at the psalm in three sections. Firstly, we'll see that God's love should produce in us thanksgiving. God's love should produce in us thanksgiving. Secondly, we'll see that God's faithfulness should produce trust and confidence. God's faithfulness should produce trust and confidence. And then thirdly, we'll see that God's salvation plan should produce praise and worship. Love, faithfulness, salvation are all aspects of God's goodness. And in turn, they should produce thanksgiving, trust, and worship. So with this in mind, let's turn to the first four verses of the psalm. And again, if you have your Bibles with you, please open up and let's engage in the Word of God together. The first four verses of this psalm are a framework for us to understand the overall song. As I said, this is a communal hymn. And so when you see words in the first person like I or like me, this is actually the worship leader who is speaking on behalf of the people as a collective experience, not someone talking about his own personal experience. So imagine, if you will, the Israelites gathering just on the outskirts of Jerusalem for a holy festival. Each family has traveled really far. In those days, there were no cars, so the journey would have taken three to five days. And now they're congregating together to make this final ascent into the, into the temple. Suddenly, someone walks to the front. He's the worship leader. The crowds quieten down and look at him. And with a loud shout, he declares, I'll give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. And he turns immediately to those around him and he declares, Let Israel say, Give thanks to the Lord. His steadfast love endures forever. He turns to the priests around him and shouts, Let the house of Aaron say, Let the house, his steadfast love endures forever. And then he turns to all those who are near and far and he says, Let those who fear the Lord say, His steadfast love endures forever. Can you sense that feeling of the occasion? The feeling of solemnity? and yet with jubilation and excitement and joy all in one. The worship leader tells us very clearly the central point of this psalm is that God is good and we are to thank Him. It's very easy to see this because he opens this in verse 1 and he closes this with the same exhortation in verse 29. Give thanks to the Lord for He is good. His steadfast love endures forever. What exactly is it that makes God good? Of all the attributes that the psalmist could point to, he points to and singles out God's steadfast love. God's steadfast love is one of the most beautiful phrases you can find in the Bible. It's mentioned here four times already in the first four verses, so it's clearly the central point of this song. 
And the phrase, I must admit, is not commonly used today, right? We don't go around talking about steadfast love in our everyday language. But the Israelites would have understood it. They would have understood it in their day-to-day conversation, and they would have understood the weight and meaning of that phrase. When we see this word, steadfast love, we shouldn't gloss over it just like it's a technical, nice-to-know phrase. It's actually really important. Instead, we should pause and reflect on the depth and breadth of its meaning and its application. In fact, it's so important, God uses it to introduce and describe himself when he first reveals himself to the Israelites in Exodus 34. It's like when you meet someone new and you say, hey, my name is Daniel, and there's some kind of meaning behind that. And so this is what God says in Exodus 34. I am the Lord, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for all generations. What then is steadfast love? It's certainly not a kind of love that humans can feel towards each other. The Hebrew word can best be defined as redeeming love in our English language. And it refers to a very special type of love that God shows for sinful people. It's a love that God shows for sinful people. Despite our sinful rebellion, God stooped low and provided us a way out from judgment. He put in place a salvation plan that reconciles us to himself. This redeeming love is what drove him to bind himself in covenant with us, even though we were not deserving. It's this redeeming love that drove him to send his very own son as an atoning sacrifice for humanity. It's this redeeming love that drove him to provide the Holy Spirit so that we would be sealed for all of eternity. Listen to what God says about his redeeming love. In Isaiah 54 verse 10, he says, For the mountains may depart and the hills may be removed, but my steadfast love will not depart from you. And my covenant of peace will not be removed, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. Friends, have you ever been in some catastrophic natural disaster like an earthquake? Have you seen mountains and hills completely taken down? Maybe we've seen video clips of avalanches or tsunamis coming down. This isn't hyperbole here. We're talking about the end of the world as we know it. And yet at that point in time, God says his steadfast love will not depart from his people. God's steadfast love is unrelenting. It's pursuing. It's everlasting towards those who do not deserve it. Friends, if you're not moved by this, you should be. If you're God's people, then you'll realize we are God's people not because we chose God or decided to accept Him into our hearts. We are God's people because of His unrelenting, redeeming love coming after us. Without His grace and mercy, we would be crushed. We would be destroyed. We would never have turned to Him. So let's be thankful today for God's steadfast love. Let's rejoice because of His grace. 
And now notice, after expressing his thanksgiving, the worship leader quickly calls on the entire covenant community to follow after him. We see this in verses 2 and verse 3 and verse 4. He calls on the nation of Israel, then he calls on the house of Aaron, and then finally he calls on those who fear the Lord, whether they are part of the bloodline of Israel or whether they were Gentiles who had joined the nation. And why does the worship leader call on all these people? Now, it's very true that each person must reckon with God and work out where they stand with them. I can't help you repent and believe. I can't do that on your behalf. And I can't bring you to bow down before God other than telling you what the gospel says. As Philippians 2.12 says, you, you must work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And yet, at the same time, while our faith is personal, it is never private. Let me say that again. While our faith is personal, it is never private. Why? It's because God saves to Himself a particular people, in the plural, a people, a people who are meant to live in community with Him and with each other. Now, sadly, this principle is lost in much of evangelical church today, especially in the Western world where Christians have prioritized the concept of self and privacy to such an unhealthy degree, sadly to their own detriment and sadly to the detriment of the church. We like living individual lives rather than living in community with each other. Hey, my life is my business. Please stay out of it. And I'll share with you what I want to share on a Sunday when we meet together and chat for five minutes. But friends, this is not about Western or Eastern culture. This is about modeling after God's plan for us. Do you see that? It's modeling after God's plan for us. It's about obedience to His Word. God's plan only works when we follow it, and His plan is that we live in community with each other. But don't take my word for it. Turn to what the Word of God says in Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2, verse 19 to 22. Paul tells us then, So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens, plural, with the saints and members of the household of God, a household, not individuals, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Holy Spirit. But this isn't a once-off reference I've just selected from the Bible. Other writers in the Bible are equally clear and consistent. We read this in our reading from this morning in 1 Peter 2, right? In verse 9, Peter says, But you are a chosen race. That's not one person at a time. You are a royal priesthood. That's many people together. You are a holy nation. Again, many, many people. A people for his own possession. Friends, you are not saved to be individual islands. The Bible is very clear, and we should be clear on this. 
God saves a people to himself and he desires that we join in community with each other as we praise him. This is not meant to be burdensome. It's meant to be a blessing for us to enjoy each other and enjoy him together. So let's just pause here and think about how this passage applies to us. Let's go back to the first point. Let me ask you this. When we pray, what proportion of our prayer is devoted to thanking God for His steadfast love and mercy? Is there a healthy dose of thanksgiving that's focused on God's goodness and character? Or do our prayers sound like a Christmas wish list of all the things that I want God to do for me? I often worry that we inadvertently make God our personal genie. It's right and good that we make our needs known to Him, but if this is the only reason why we ever pray, then we've missed the point, haven't we? Our prayers should first and foremost start off with God and praise Him for who He is and what He's done. So let's make our prayers much more about Him and less about us. Secondly, our thanksgiving should be much more communal. We should be modeling after this psalm, regularly meeting together to give thanks to God and to pray, pray prayers of thanksgiving. We should be sharing stories with each other of what God has done in our lives so that we can be thankful to Him together. But how can this happen if we never meet with each other and know what's going on in each other's lives? If we only meet for the first five minutes before or after church? And I'm not talking about Sunday morning service attendance here, friends. I'm talking about living in community. You see, the Israelites had plenty of time to commune with each other. When they went to the temple, they didn't have cars. They traveled in caravan form together for days. They ate and drank together. They pitched the tents together. They walked together. They sat together. They lived together. And similarly, in the early church, we see the bulk of the church and those who formed that church were spent together. Persecution drove them to support each other and to share stories of thanksgiving. Think about Acts chapter 4 when, when Peter and John were summoned and taken ahead and, and were put before the council. And as they were freed from prison, what did they do? They didn't go and run away to another city to hide from persecution. They deliberately sought out their brothers and sisters to do what? To complain? No, Acts 4 tells us very clearly. They found their brothers and sisters and together they lifted their voices together to praise and thank God for that persecution. Can you imagine that? So friends, this is the kind of church community and culture we must develop here at Redeemer Bible Church. Let's begin today. Let's make it a point to stay behind after church to get to know your brothers and sisters better and to have lunch with each other today and to be in each other's lives throughout the course of this week. Now let's move on to verses 5 to 18, our second section. Having made the key point that God is good and that we should thank Him, the worship leader now highlights another example of God's goodness. That is his steadfast love. Oh, sorry, I beg your pardon. It's his faithfulness. In verses 5 to 18, he tells us that God's faithfulness should produce 
trust and confidence in his people. Now remember again the context in which this psalm was written. Israel had rebelled against God by following after other nations in idolatry. And as early as the time of the judges, the people had worshipped other gods and committed all kinds of horrible sins. After a short time of prosperity during the reign of David and Solomon, it worsened again in both the northern and southern kingdoms. There were times where one or two kings tried to do good and bring the nation back to God, but by and large, Israel's history was tarnished with disobedience. And despite sending prophet after prophet to warn them of their sin, the Israelites chose to continue in their rebellion. They mocked and scoffed at the messengers that God sent. And so God eventually had enough and punished them by giving them over to their enemies. Around 600 BC, God sent the Babylonians to conquer Israel and took whatever remained of its people into Babylon for 70 years. This is real history. You can read up on it. And the Israelites recognized that they were being chastened by God himself. Have a look at verse 18. We can see this here. When the psalmist says, The Lord chastened me severely, but he has not given me over to death. And so we see that God in his goodness was not done with his people. When the Israelites finally cried out to God in distress, he gave them victory over their enemies. Verse 5 says, Out of my distress I called to the Lord, and the Lord answered me and set me free. God's faithfulness would not allow him to abandon his people forever. Let me say that again. God's faithfulness would not allow him to abandon his people. It's not the good works of the people or their sacrifices or their promises to do good. It's God's faithfulness. All that the people could do is to cry out to him in distress. And thankfully, God is faithful. Around 540 BC, God caused the Persians to conquer Babylon and he moved the heart of King Cyrus the Great so that he would give permission for the Jews to come out and to return to their own land. Friends, faithfulness is a central part of God's own character. Again, we read that in Exodus 34 where God says, He is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Isn't it wonderful that God's mercy and salvation is not dependent on our works, but upon His faithfulness alone? Think about it. Which of us would willingly turn to God if we were left to ourselves? Who amongst us could generate so much good work that we would have one single sin forgiven before a righteous and holy God? Thank God that His goodness, it's not dependent on us, but on His faithfulness. And when we truly understand God's faithfulness, it should produce a trust and confidence in Him that cannot be shaken. The psalmist comes to this realization in verse 7 to 9. He says, The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is, my helper, is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. 
It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. He affirms that with God on Israel's side, the nation will, will prevail over all those who would seek to destroy it. Now, in those days, kings and princes ruled absolutely and had all the powers you can imagine. With one hand gesture, someone could die. With one word, entire groups of people could be exterminated. And when a nation was in trouble, they would quickly work out political deals with neighboring kings and rulers for protection. From a worldly perspective, kings and princes were the epitome of power. Now, in our contemporary setting, just to put it into perspective, it's kind of like the nation of Ukraine right now, looking to the European nations or looking to the US to provide it with supplies and, and arms to help defend against Russia. So it's a really important deal, kings and princes. And yet the worship leader realizes after all that the Israelites had gone through, that it is God they should be trusting. He asked the people, next time our enemies come, who should we turn to? Whose name should we invoke for help? Who should we cry out to? Have a look at verses 10 to 13 for the answer. All nations surround me. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surround me, surrounded me on every side. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me like bees. They went out like a fire among thorns. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. I was pushed hard so that I was falling, but the Lord helped me. The Israelites don't need to turn to other nations for help or to bow down to other gods anymore. It is the name of the Lord who will do the work. Now, most of us don't live under the power and authority of kings and princes today. So we may think, this doesn't apply to us. But we can sometimes have a misplaced trust in governments and political parties to sort out the problems of the world, can't we? We can turn to the Democratic Party or the Republican Party to save our nation, or to turn to NATO or the Group of Seven or the United Nations to save the world and give us peace. We long for world peace, don't we? Friends, take refuge in the Lord. Turn to Him for your trust and confidence. If you worry about the sorry state of the world, turn to the Lord and ask that His kingdom be established on earth as it is in heaven. If you worry about the persecution of Christians, turn to the Lord and ask that He keep His people and refrain those who persecute them. And if you're concerned about rising crime rates, turn to the Lord and ask Him to protect you and to bring about peace and justice in our nation. And if you're concerned about your health or you're afflicted by illness, as I know many are this week, then turn to the Lord and ask Him for healing and faith in His providence. And if you're concerned about the election, turn to the Lord and ask Him to establish the authorities over the land. And if you're concerned about the economy, turn to the Lord and ask Him for contentment and ask Him that His people will care for the poor and the destitute and the homeless.
hear what the psalmist concludes when he thinks about God's faithfulness. Verse 14 to 16. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord exalts. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. Notice again this three-part repetition. It is the Lord who saves us, not worldly institutions. There are no political parties or governments that can provide the answers you need, my friends. So let's put all of our hope in God. Before we move to our final section, let me ask you this. Does your life reflect a strong and still confidence in the Lord? Do you live a life of worry and fear? Are you constantly dwelling on your situation and thinking about what terrible things are coming your way? And maybe true enough, you've faced severe trials and hardships recently, and I know that several of our church family here have this week with ill health and the passing of family members. I don't want to discount that at all. But if this is you, then turn to the Lord, cry out to Him for help. Ask Him to be your strength and to be your song. Then trust in Him that He has your good and He has your, His glory in mind. He has not promised you freedom from suffering, but He has promised that He is on your side and He will be your helper. Take refuge in Him. It's better than trusting in man. Alternatively, when troubles come your way, is your reaction like the Jacob of old to outthink and to outplan and to outmaneuver the situation? I must admit, this is something that I find that I often resort to. And it was humbling as I prepared the sermon to think and reflect on it myself. I have a tendency to rely on myself and on my own way for deliverance. Maybe this is you too. Perhaps you put all your trust in doctors and never turn to God to ask for help in your ill health. Is what you watch on the TV or the podcast that you listen to or the books that you read or the Twitter tweets that you look at building you up to trust in political parties and governments and leaders? Or is it building you up to trust in God? Let's remember it is far better, far better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. Finally, we come to our final section, which can be found in verses 19 to 29. The worship leader now leads the people in this final section of praise that's focused on God's salvation plan as an outworking of His goodness. These final verses remind us that all of God's actions are part of this big picture, redemptive plan that He has put in place since the Garden of Eden. We see in verses 19 to 29 a rich passage that is both relevant to the Israelites at that time, but also prophetic in pointing to Jesus in our time. Now let's go back to our scene where the people are making this final descent to the temple. Now, as the Israelites sing of God's goodness, there's energy and there's anticipation in the air. Everyone is pumped 
and they're excited about going to the temple to worship him. This is a triumphant entry and nothing can hold them back. And so the worship leader sings in verse 19, Open to me the gates of righteousness, that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and you have become my salvation. Now the leader recognizes not only has God delivered Israel from the Babylonians, but he has again elevated the nation of Israel to a position of value and worth. This is the culmination of God's steadfast love and faithfulness. Israel was cast to the side. Nation after nation had plundered it. The, enti- the empire builders of the world, the Assyrians and the Babylonians, had thoroughly rejected Israel and trod on the nation. And yet God, in His grace and mercy, picked this discarded stone up and made it the cornerstone. We see this in verses 22 to 24. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It's marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Now, as you can imagine, the cornerstone is a place of preeminence. In ancient masonry, it's the first stone that's laid in the construction of a foundation. It becomes the reference point for all the stones that are put next to it and around it and on top of it. So by the cornerstone, all the other stones have relevance. By the cornerstone, you can tell if the building is straight and true. And by this cornerstone, God carries out His whole salvation plan for all the nations. Not only has Israel been restored, but it has been made this central part of God's redemptive love. And it's for this reason that the people are so excited and energized to go through the gates of the temple. Friends, God is worthy to be exalted, isn't He? God is worthy to be praised, and God is worthy of our worship. And for all of us that's born on this side of history, as we read the psalm, we should easily recognize that it's, while it spoke about the nation of Israel, it's also pointing to that coming Messiah who would redeem the whole world. In fact, Psalm 118 is one of the most quoted passages of the Old Testament in the New Testament. And on each occasion that this psalm is quoted, there is a specific tie between Jesus and the passage here. So we know, for example, last week we studied Matthew 21. And Jesus refers to himself, reading verses 22 to 24, he he tells the chief priests and he tells the leaders that he is that cornerstone. He is the fulfillment of this prophecy. And similarly, I reference Acts chapter 4. If you have time this afternoon, go back and read it. Peter and John, when they appeared before the council, they told them, this Jesus is the cornerstone. It's the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. So he deliberately points out that the the council, the religious leaders of the time, they were the builders who rejected Jesus, and he has now become the cornerstone. And similarly, when we look at verse 26, where it talks about the, the person, the blessed person who comes in the name of the Lord, Jesus himself refers to that verse and ties himself to that. 
in Luke chapter 19, you might remember Jesus coming in and all these people were shouting hosannas to him. And people cried out, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And when the Pharisees heard that, they were offended. And they told Jesus, tell these guys to shut up. It's blasphemy they're calling out. But instead, Jesus actually affirms it. He says to the religious leaders, if these people stop crying out, these rocks, these stones on the ground, they would become alive and cry out and say the same thing, that I am indeed the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Of course, there are other indirect examples that are worth noting here. Jesus says in John chapter 10, I am the gate, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and he will go in and out and find pasture. Doesn't this make you think of verses 19 and 20 of the psalm? Or what about the link between verse 27 of the psalm and John chapter 1? Verse 27 says, The Lord is God and he has made his light to shine upon us. And that should immediately make us think of John chapter 1, where, where John says in reference to Jesus, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. In verse 9, the true light, Jesus, is the true light, which gives light to everyone. And he was coming into the world. So we see that this section of the psalm is truly prophetic, pointing to Jesus as the one who comes in the name of the Lord and who alone is worthy of worship and praise. Well, sadly, after Israel's exile and then subsequently their return, its religious leaders again took them down the path of idolatry, this time into a more complex and hypocritical system of works that just corrupted the people. And we saw a bit of that last week, didn't we? And when Jesus came to proclaim good news, the religious leaders rejected him. They tried to suppress the truth. They tried to rebuke him. And then eventually they tried to kill him and indeed succeeded. And they even tried to cover up his resurrection by paying off the guards. But sadly for them, God prevailed. And God worked out his grand purpose through Jesus and exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Friends, Jesus is ultimately the culmination of God's grand plan of salvation. He's the cornerstone on which all of world history is built, and one day He will return to earth to judge both the living and the dead and to bring to completion that great redemptive plan. Friends, how does this apply to you this morning? Firstly, I want us to notice that it's the righteous who will enter into the gates of the Lord. That means if you have not turned to God in repentance and faith, then the promises and blessings spoken about in this psalm don't apply to you. I'm very sorry, but they cannot be claimed by you. But this does not mean that you need to come with your own righteousness. Instead, you must come with the righteousness that Jesus provides. 
If there is anyone here who has not recognized that Jesus is the cornerstone that is worthy of worship, then I urge you to seriously, seriously consider his claims. He says that you have lived a life in rebellion against a perfect and holy God and are therefore worthy of eternal punishment. He tells you there is nothing that you can do to make things right. No amount of penance or good deeds can unwind your sin against God, and therefore you are under judgment already. But there's good news. Jesus claims to be the Son of God, who came from heaven and lived a perfect life. He took on the punishment that you deserved by dying on the cross and rose again, so that you can be restored to a loving relationship with God Himself. All of the work that needs doing has been done. All you need to do is openly admit, confess your sins, and turn to Him. So this morning, He demands your allegiance to Him, and that you turn away from your sins and from living your own life, and that you believe and follow Him. This is the grand plan of salvation that is spoken of here in Psalm 118. This is the steadfast love that we've been studying this morning. God is pursuing you. He's pursuing you, and He desires that you return to Him in repentance and faith. So if you're not a Christian yet and would like to find out a little bit more about how to become one, please let Ben and I know or any of the elders or deacons know we'd be more than happy to meet with you. And if this morning you are a Christian, you are part of God's community, then you should gladly join in worship with a psalmist and sing, this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Jesus' work on that cross should produce a heart of worship and adoration towards God. It should create in us a deep sense of joy and jubilation every time we meet with God. This should affect us in two ways. On a personal level, let me ask if this heart of worship is reflected in how you come before God every week. Do you think about worship on the Lord's Day with a sense of anticipation and excitement as the Israelites did when they sung this song? The Israelites had to plan weeks in advance. They had to look at their schedules. They had to prepare food. They had to pack up their bags ahead as they traveled for days towards the temple. If you're not approaching with this level of intentionality, then let me encourage you to be more intentional as you plan to worship God and meet with His people every week. Let me encourage you to be thoughtful on Saturday nights. Perhaps you can sit down with your family and read ahead the passage that will be preached. Maybe you can meditate on it and note down any points that seem significant to you. And then instead of going bed at 10 or 11 or 12 o'clock at night and coming to church blurry-eyed, I'd encourage you, go to bed early so that you can feel rested and refreshed to meet with God. And then on Sunday mornings, make it a point of coming to church early to prepare your hearts for worship. I'm sure that if we were to meet with the president or the governor, we would probably arrive at least half an hour or an hour earlier. We would arrive looking really sharp and ready to go. Well, each Sunday morning, my friends, we gather to meet 
with the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He is far greater, far more worthy than any president or any monarch or any leader that we can come up with. Let's have a hard attitude that reflects that. Don't let your Sunday mornings be so rushed, so poorly planned that your mind is left wandering throughout the service whether you've left the gas stove on. Now, at a communal level, I'd like to encourage this church to be a community that thrives at corporate singing. If we truly love God and want to worship Him for all that He has done, then as the saying goes, sing it like we mean it. Let's sing it like we mean it. We don't have to be American Idol contestants or the world's greatest singer to worship God. Thank God for that. God sees our hearts and He knows our intentions. The book of Revelations tells us that there will be lots of singing in heaven. And so if singing is not your forte, the good news is you have all eternity to learn. So when we gather together, let's do so with conviction. Let your voices reflect the joyous outpouring of thanks and gratitude to God. Our final song is going to be Amazing Grace, which contains some of the sweetest words of worship that's been written. So let us sing it with hearts that reflect our love for God. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. Amen.